Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Loss is crushing. There are no simpler, sweeter ways to say it. Sometimes the universe just decides that time is finally up for something and, no matter what your prerogative, the end is blunt, hard, and final. Normally I try to cloak these introductions and vagaries and easy sentiment, try to let you in slow, but I really can't. Not with this one, so... I'll tell it to you straight. A year ago, almost to the day, in fact, my fiancé's and mine's uh, pet rabbit, Jacques, died. I'm not easily moved. I'm a big guy. I've done some gnarly shit in my life, not the least of which was running and gunning as an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps. I think, in fact, that because of that hardness, when I finally got to meet and know that little rabbit, I was sort of taken aback. He was a small, red-eyed little fluff of a thing and already old when I met him. 
But he, like my fiancé, helped me through a transition period in my life that I didn't even know that I was going through at the time. I was angry, indignant really, almost all the time. I drank. Even at 28, I hadn't yet let myself grow up to be the man I could really be. The man who, today, has written and is reading this intro to you. A writer. A creator. Me. Jacques was sick for a while, before the end. There were a few close calls, and then, finally, we took him to the vet, and my fiancé held him while they euthanized him. He'd made it to 12, about four years longer than the average life expectancy for a rabbit. We buried him in the backyard of the first house I'd ever owned. His headstone is a concrete paving tile set sideways so it looks like a diamond, half buried in the earth. I used to be a callous, empty sort of man. Before my fiancé came into my life and Jacques with her, I would have probably made fun of a guy who got upset about a dead rabbit. Any pet really, but especially one so insignificant, so small. But Jacques had, like I think most pets do, given me an outlet to care about something else in a way I didn't care about myself. And in that way, I was roundabout given a second chance at being whole again. When he passed, I had vivid, terrifying nightmares of the process of decay. I'm given to nightmares, but these were especially terrible. To the point I'd have to go stand by the door and look outside or do something else to rinse away the pain clinging to the sides of my skull like a thick grease. Eventually, as almost always is the case, I worked through those feelings in the story I'm about to read for you. A story in which a somewhat lost young man travels to a faraway swamp to preside over the last days of a mysterious, aging woman. I hope you enjoy it. But first... This month's recommendations. This month's literature recommendation is Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris. This time of year, those of you familiar with Sedaris are probably thinking of the Santaland Diaries. And if you like those, you're sure to enjoy this collection of funny essays and recollections. For those of you unfamiliar with Sedaris, he's a fairly hilarious American essayist whose work periodically, and most often, appears on NPR programs. The content of his short, true-to-life and true-life stories can be dry and a touch highbrow, so mileage may vary, but I've honestly never met somebody who actively doesn't like David Sedaris. Me Talk Pretty One Day is a collection of 27 different essays, mostly dealing with Sedaris' relationships with his odd, effete family, his struggles with learning French after moving to Normandy with his partner, and very much the nature of fishes who are found out of water. It's a great bedside book if you're the type that likes to read in short, punchy little bits over a long period of time. Faster readers can finish the book in a day, maybe two, if you're busy. Either way, I totally think you should check the book out. I'll leave a link in the description. This month's random horror recommendation is the 2015 supernatural horror period thriller, The Witch, directed by Roger Eggers, who also directed the recently released movie, The Lighthouse. The Witch, I usually pronounce it The Vitch, given its spelling on most all promotional material, concerns the lives of a small colonial New England family after they're banished from their village because of some prideful religious dispute on the father's part. 
He thus takes his family to live devoutly in the woods, not knowing their newest neighbor is a black magic practicing woods witch. What ensues is probably the most unnerving scenes I've ever seen on film. This is a horror film with, functionally speaking, no jump scares. The actors in the period setting do a great job of creating a sense of unease that is never really broken even until the end of the film. If you're in the mood for a horror movie that will make you feel sick without ever really being sickening, this is a for sure winner. Anybody who likes, for instance, The Wailing or Jacob's Ladder will certainly appreciate this film. An absolute must-see, in my opinion. I'll leave a link in the description. Also, if you want to hear me expound more at length on this month's recommendations, please check out the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episodes released on the third Friday of every month. In those, I go into detail on the recommendations, giving some history for each one, and explaining what I do and don't like about them. So, if you're interested, please check out the Horror and Lit Club episodes here on the regular feed on the third Friday of every month. Now, without further ado, today's story, Mud of the Heart. I have begun this confession many times, but you must understand that I always began it with this line. I loved her. And you must believe me. I loved her. I was twenty and some odd years when I came to her home at the end of civilization. A grand and sweeping thing near enough the sea for the smell of salt, but too far for those magnetic sunrises which make living on the east coast worth it. It was still there, of course, the sun. Great and glowing and spreading life all over the world. But her manor sat deeply inland, behind a shallow lagoon of cypress and pond scum. Great catfish dwelled out there beneath the mossy green carpet, and small alligators that enjoyed the brackish waters. It was beautiful in its own way, as was the owner of this lonely manor in the deepest recesses of the exclusion zone. The light which filtered through the tangled cypress limbs lay gold on the settled waters in the first few hours of the morning, often slipping through competing layers of fog to lay across the wet backs of bullfrogs and the lie the blackness of water snakes flitting bank to bank. At night the scene dimmed. The fog and shimmer remained, though greatly diminished, so that every speck of moonlight catching in the dewdrops and raindrops and water catchers and pond breaks would float like stars amongst the rising, staccato blips of the fireflies. It was noon when I arrived, bouncing gently along with the thick wheels and suspension of the swamp treader. It is, if you have not seen one, a trailer wagon of sorts I've only ever encountered out here near the end of the world. A mechanical paddle horse drags it through the mud and shallows, and it floats and catches a great deal through all of this. I was almost seasick by the time we arrived, ill as much from the jostling as from the alligator carcasses stacked like firewood in the cargo portion of the wagon. I bet you're surprised someone lives all the way out here, I joked with the otherwise silent and pondering form of the carriageman who'd taken me out on the drive. 
He chewed at the cut in his lips, a sort of shredded tobacco popular outwards, constantly wet, and spit. You're saying someone does, he said. Then he spit and maneuvered around the path to head back to the town where I'd embarked, some ten miles behind us. I opened my mouth to say something, but decided against it, picking up my valise and my much larger traveling trunk and starting toward the house. The mud made dragging the heavy trunk hard going, but only for a few feet. Though the road itself was covered in thickly layered muck, the great treeless courtyard of the manor house was firm. As the trunk scraped along, I realized the courtyard was really a large stone roundabout that had become covered in moss. I was so engrossed with the patterning of the covered stone, I didn't notice her looking at me. Her eyes were startling, as I'd been warned they would be, a glittering, brilliant red that stood in stark contrast with her paper-white skin. She looked almost like a doll, standing there in her black and blue patterned dress steadying hand braced against the wall beside the door. I raised a hand and smiled, and she returned the gesture. Then she slipped inside and out of view with almost a flutter. Again, I had opened my mouth to say something, and it had stalled in my throat. A sort of rumbling, ratcheting noise croaked out into the courtyard, and I looked around, startled to find the noise was just that, a croak. A great bullfrog sat on the lip of the vine-draped fountain in the center of the courtyard. Fat is my fist. As I watched, it hopped onto the head of the tarnished marble rabbit that served as the fountainhead, and then out of sight. Our introductions were polite, but limited. She lived alone and could not speak due to the terminal nature of her condition. I will not describe this affliction in detail. It hurts me too much to mention. But I'm sure you'll understand the nature of it, given my descriptions of her. She could not write for herself. She could not speak. She could eat, but only soft things and liquids. She could dress herself with some difficulty, but no buttons or zippers or clasps. Her remaining dignities were to bathe and use the restroom unassisted, to walk with a cane and to read. I left my things in the lobby of the great house and joined her in the library, a drum of a room two stories tall. We tried to communicate as best we could, and ultimately I found that asking her yes and no questions was all the speech left to her. You understand who I am? Yes? You expected me? Several nods and a soft white hand. Fingers extended, patting down the air. Please, slow down if you could. Ah, sorry, I said, adjusting myself on the old red couch. Have you been getting on well? A shrug and a smile. A slight tilting of the head side to side. So-so. I licked my lips and swallowed. Your former nurse has anybody... Seen to her? A long, sad sigh. Then a slow shake of the head. No. I nodded my head and laid back against the couch, looking at the ceiling. The isolation of this woman was beyond comprehension. 
Neither I, nor my hiring agency, nor perhaps anybody would have known she was out here dying in this swamp if not for the arrival of the letter from her former nurse. It reads as such. To Mr. and Mrs. Gretz B. Holmes, It has come to my attention that you are folks of a generous and godly disposition who run an honest and caring hospice service for the elderly and infirm. I am writing not on my own behalf but that of my charge, the Honourable Miss Hester Withrow of Ebling Parish in Eastmarch, which you might understand is the third exclusion zone south of Old D.C. Without going into great detail, I must admit that I have committed, perhaps, the greatest sin of a caretaker, perishing before the death of my charge. I will, in fact, be well and fully dead before this letter reaches your hands. It is with that in mind that I have written you today in the great hope that you will lend your services to Miss Withrow. She herself is not long for this world, though longer than I, but also in much more terrible health, if you will believe it. She is afflicted with a condition that robs her of much dignity, and that will leave her in a state beyond description if I am no longer here to care for her. She has no friends or family. Nobody knows she is here save myself and the cruel and stupid peasants of the nearby parish. I do not trust them to tend to her affairs, and so I am writing to you for help. I have heard of your services through an old friend who is also now gone. Time is very cruel. This last sentence was written in a hand that seemed hesitant. The ink had dotted up around where the letters curved. I have enclosed my last month's salary along with this letter. Please, please, please take this money as surety that I am no con artist or prankster. There is just as much and more here that I will never put to use, as I am too bereft of family to whom I might pass on this wealth. Take it as payment for your services. Please do not allow Miss Withrow to die in pain and misery. She is a dear, kind heart. With all due respect and honour, Mrs. Callum Spratling, CHPLN. My employer, Mrs. Holmes, had put me on the first train out of New Albany, headed for the coast after she finished the letter. It should be noted that this is an extremely long way to travel, both for myself and for a letter. And, unlike the letter, I had the benefit of the swamp treader to bring me the ten miles between the manor house and the nearest town. Mrs. Spratling, full well knowing she was dying of whatever ailment had afflicted her, had walked all ten miles to deposit the letter at the local post office, and then, drawing on some mad reserves of energy, had trampled all the way back here to check on Miss Withrow one last time. And so I found this remarkable woman laying deeply past death in her simple twin bed in the servants' quarters of the house. Rot had taken and left her already, leaving little more than a dried and eyeless husk on the yellowed bedsheets. Even though I thought I should be horrified, I was in truth struck speechless by the dignity of the scene. Service is looked down upon by the young and self-obsessed, seen as little more than kowtowing to the greater figures which you some day secretly hope you will be, and perhaps it is that to some. But to me, 
standing beside this corpse laying on its common bed in its common shrouds, its weathered brown hair splayed out on the pillow above it. This woman looked no less graceful than any queen. She had perished in a state of such absolute dedication she seemed like some demigod, her simple cotton tick more magnificent than a marble beer. I stooped to wrap and gather her body, lifting it easily and carrying it to the back of the house. Miss Withrow had thankfully stayed outside the hall, her throatless sobbing following me like the whisper of wind through a keyhole. Our speechless speaking had revealed to me that Mrs. Spratling had, in fact, built her own coffin in the workshop beside the garden. The woman was sure to have everything in place before her final hour. I found two boxes in the back, a simple casket hastily thrown together out of cheap wood, clearly taken from apple crates and a much more ornate, if not somewhat amateurish, thing set beneath a cloth in the corner. This cloth I removed to reveal the whole of the creation. Having set the corpse of Mrs. Spratling to temporary rest amongst the red and purple wildflowers currently devouring the stones of the rear portico. The coffin beneath was a wonderfully made thing, though not very modern, and inlaid with old pillow stuffing and shreds of silk dresses that made a pattern of sewn rainbows along the interior. To be buried in a cloud after a rainstorm. I thought, apropos of nothing. Also, apropos of nothing, I dragged this magnificent coffin out of the workshop to lay alongside the form of Mrs. Spratling. Then I placed her inside it and went to search for a shovel. When I returned, I found Miss Withrow sitting beside the coffin, her skirts in a pile over her legs. She saw me and smiled, red eyes almost pink in the sunlight. She pointed to the coffin and then to herself, shaking her head, and then tapped the space where Mrs. Spratling's heart might lay, and nodded. Then she burst into tears. I knelt and held her until the crying ebbed, stopped, and then I led her into the house and made her the first true dinner she'd had in a while out of the canned provisions I found stored in the pantry. I put on my equivalent of work clothes and set to burying Miss Spratling. No mean task, given the condition of the ground around the place. My spade buried itself two feet deeper than I thought it might go on a simple push. Then I was pulling buckets of slop out of the way until my body was almost completely slicked with black mud. I rigged up a pulley system out of stakes and rope laid flat along the ground and maneuvered the coffin in place. It slid down nicely though I could only dig about three and a half feet down before hitting water. Still, the coffin would be well covered and, when it was done, I returned to the house to bathe and orchestrate some sort of service for the benefit of Miss Withrow. To my surprise, she met me at the door, where I believe she'd been standing for some time as I went through the process of burying her former nurse. And, I'm sure, her only friend, for a very long time before the former's death. She laughed, further to my surprise, and I realized how comical I must look covered head to toe in mud. 
I told her my intentions of showering and dressing in my best coat and hat, but she simply grabbed my hand and led me slowly to the grave. I may as well have been carried by a breeze. Her pull was so gentle and insistent. There was some more crying, and then all ebbed and was done. I placed a simple wooden placard Mrs. Spratling had engraved with her and her husband's, Carlos, names and dates of birth and death, her own date of death, bearing the number of the year and the month, but not the day. I finished carving myself with some help from Miss Withrow. Then we placed the placard and returned to the house. And so ended my first day at Withrow Manor House. The schedule of Withrow Manor House is something of a waltz in three parts, and all the parts thrumming out in that same three-part rhythm in time with the winding of the clock, which, as it so happens, is the first step in the dance. I wake early, about six, and wind the old thing. Then I prepare a breakfast for Miss Withrow, and I prepare Miss Withrow for the day. She is always awake when I enter the room, sitting plaintively with a book in hand or sometimes staring out the window. The latter is always the case when it rains, which is as often as not, because she reads by the natural light of the morning and the clouds make it too dark. It's on these days I bring in a tray to set before her, and she asks me to sit with her while she eats. I always acquiesce. It's really no bother. And often I use my younger, stronger eyes to read to her from her place and whatever book she was working on. Miss Withrow is. Was. Is. A great lover of books. And it was my greatest pleasure in her service to have the run of the library. This being part and parcel of the second act of our daily waltz. Partners now in the heightening light and heat of the afternoon, I take Miss Withrow in hand from her quarters down the stairs to the library or the salar beside the rear gardens. She sits and reads or otherwise tries to keep her hands busy. They are clumsier, she tells me than they have ever been. Then she takes me to a large room on the second floor where she keeps her old projects, great blankets and dresses and other textiles she's woven or sewn or stitched or knitted. She points them out to me, all of them save one great piece that hangs catching the light of five great windows at the back of the room. This thing, this tapestry, she pretends as though it's not there. When I ask, she demurs, and so I don't ask again. The second two steps of the afternoon are lunch and then a walk around the grounds. She points at parts of the property and tells me their importance, and I find it odd, the trivial things that can hold such sway over a person's past. In the corner of the East Garden lays a small table where her father liked to hold his first conversations with new business partners and his last conversations. She tells me he was a kind but often intemperate man, and he didn't like for his wife and daughter to hear him yelling at people. In the center of the roundabout is the great rabbit-shaped fountainhead, which she tells me was a gift from an old friend of her father. She smiles at the hunk of white stone, but the smile is sad. I think to ask her more, 
and I don't. We then move on to the last leg of the day's dance, which begins with supper and ends with bed. But laying between those final steps is the penultimate, in which my lady asks me to attend her to the second floor, and then to leave her and busy myself with something for a few hours. Though it concerns me to leave her alone for any length of time, I do. My only rules of conduct, imposed on myself by myself, are to remain on the first floor and occupy my attentions only with the pastimes that require little concentration and make little noise. I must keep an ear out in case of emergency, after all. Without fail, she meets me at the door of her bedroom around 10 p.m., and I assist her as necessary in going to bed and then make my way to the servants' quarters. I pretend not to notice, because I see the way she hides them, the occasional odd dots of blood on the sides of her fingers, the apparent exhaustion in her eyes. So I shut the door behind her and thus concludes our daily dance, and it is always an odd thing to be left alone on the dance floor when your partner has taken her leave. It is the finality of it, I think standing there in the deepening, echoing shadows of that house and straining my ears for the sound of her clothing and rustling sheets as she climbs into bed. The soft inhalations and exhalations this little exercise necessitates from her worn and infirm body. They, like the great and empty silence of the hallway, are all as much signs of life as much as death. I might stand there for hours, straining my ears and eyes for more if it weren't so odd, so improper. For there is no family to come claim this place when it finally finds the last inheriting soul laid to rest in the rear acres. She, my lady, is the last living soul in this property. No, more. She is the last of this property's soul and with it gone I know not what echoes might come to replace those soft, slow footfalls and the rasp of silk against the faces of the carpeted stairs. The gentle rifling of pages beneath thumb and finger at the start of the day, the shuffling of feet on cue to meet me at her door at the day's end, they are the poetry of this place, made by and settled inside of it, and when they are gone, there are no better hands to put better ink to the page of this place. It will all end. It will be a thing for the worms. And as it goes, so shall we in time. It was on a night such as any other that I heard something else in the halls, save for the sounds common to myself and my lady. It was oddly familiar and lingered so that I almost saw the noise moving the dust motes in the air. I ignored it at first. I'd heard other such bits of mental nonsense since moving here and suffered more than a few share of frights, finding my own dark reflection in the mirror of a room where I thought I saw, was sure I saw, some lurking figure. On those nights, as well as these, I carried a simple electric lantern, 
the old world sword with a battery that lives forever so long as you keep it out in the sun a while or turn the little crank buried in the base of the thing. I would cast the lantern back and forth like a complete fool, creeping around the house silently so as not to wake Miss Withrow, or honestly, so the embarrassing nature of my late-night detective work would not be revealed to her. I knew the reaction she would have, of course. There would be a length of polite, rasping laughter as she held a gloved finger to her lips. Then she would assure me that any ghosts in her home were well invited and welcome to whatever chain-shaking might interest them. Following this joke, she would almost immediately apologize for making fun of me and ask if I'd like some tea. Most other nights I would have ignored this errant noise as I always did but it persisted with me, even to my room. The sound was such that I found myself looking over my shoulder more than once, half expecting each time to see some yellow-eyed ghoul in tatty clothing stretching his arms over me in the darkness. As it was, each time I turned I saw nothing but the same dark hallways and slanted beams of starlight creeping in through the house's many windows. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It was raining that night as well, and so the sound worried me more. More than some hellish creature. What if the damn roof had broken? or some seam had split in a wall and was pouring water on a priceless antique. Even though Miss Withrow had expressly told me that nothing in the house held much in the way of value to anybody on earth, save her, I maintained that everything still holding value in her eyes was then worth its weight in gold to me, as a matter of principle, if nothing else. I'd told her this once, and she'd done her customary laugh before telling me I was a sweet boy and suggesting I find some items I might keep for myself when my service ended. I protested that she should find someone of worth to pass her things on to, to find a museum or something, at least. And she'd laughed earnestly. When I further suggested the locals in the closest town might rip the place to pieces looking for things of value, she had an even odder reaction. Miss Withrow had rested a gloved hand on her chin, rubbing the space beneath her lip with a forefinger, as she sometimes did, and then smiled at me. Then she told me, in her wordless way, that if something of that nature were to happen, she would be glad for it. The dead bring all they need with them, and all they leave behind has no worth to anybody, save those that come across it. She opined that, perhaps, if this great old building were torn down and reassembled into a hundred little barns and homes and outhouses, those second lives would have all enriched the first in their own small way. I suggested to her that I found the idea of this beautiful place being torn down almost inherently distasteful. She sighed and looked around at the walls and the books and then at me. Then she shrugged and suggested we should mull those thoughts out over some tea. It was those same thoughts of waste and ruin that brought me slinking up to the second floor in my socks to find out the nature of the odd sound. It wasn't loud and to find any obvious rhythmic pattern. In some moments, I lost it to the steady patter of the rain, only to find it again a second later somehow louder and more insistent. In all honesty... It made sleeping impossible, and so I would have had to go inspecting about the second floor anyway. By the time I passed my lady's room and into the length of the southern wing of the home, I began to hear it more clearly. It was almost a smacking sound, a wooden shudder, for sure, but the sound was different almost every time, and like I said, arrhythmic, almost searching. I didn't know what I'd do if I found somebody. I'm not a man of considerable or even significant constitution. I feel sometimes the gods determined my profession before I was born and saw fit to provide me only the most necessary body for the task. That is, service and nursing. I could pick up Miss Withrow, but she was no heavier than a bag of dry grass. A man even my own size would be entirely too much for me to lift but I found no burglars, no intruders. My light shone through the room and came to rest on the culprit, a tangle of wet curtain fluttering in and out of a window as two shutters beat against it. 
The thick cloth kept them from making noise and served also to make a great crash by sometimes gathering up a great buffet of wind before coming down heavy on the backs of one shutter or another. It took a fair deal of wrangling to pull the cloth inside. Mist fell thickly through into the room, obscuring the places where I tried to place my feet and I was forced to juggle several old reams of fabric and wooden stitching frames out of the way. Finally, I managed to pull the curtain back inside the house and throw shut the window. The shutter kept banging away, but its noise was much diminished. I held the cloth in my hand, wondering after why my lady had left the window open after an already rainy day. The curtain was, like most of the window dressings in the manor house, made of a base green felt fabric and laid over with white lace and gold stitching that left the finished product looking more of a rough old bronze. It is a work of craftsmanship I had never seen in my life and, given its mundane purpose, all the more impressive for the time and care put into it. I looked up from the curtain to find my lady staring at me from the doorway, only the faintest blues of the burgeoning storm light falling through the window. Electricity crackled and then burst overhead, and I saw to my horror that something had ravaged my lady's face in the night. Deep welts dug into the soft white of her flesh, all of them filled with blood that stood out as black in the weak light. Miss Withrow? I asked moving my light up to see her better. Just then the shutter slammed home again, the slats breaking loose and bursting open the window glass. I jumped and turned to see the mist pouring through the new hole as though it were water, and the room I stood in, a tub. Even as I watched, the lightning broke afresh and a strong gust pulled the curtain out the small hole in the window. I cursed under my breath and turned my attention back to Miss Withrow, but my lantern caught only the fluttering tail of her nightdress disappearing into the hallway. I gave another look to the glass, but, remembering the condition of my lady's face, promised to see to the mess in the morning. Miss Withrow! I called after her, moving into the hall. The lightning had gone mad as I walked stuttering violently now and never quite going out. The result was an electric light show that turned the hall into something of a madhouse. Almost simultaneously light and dark, illumination coming from every conceivable angle. Every shadow seemed monstrous, diminutive, here, there, gone, returned, so that I couldn't make sense of the shape of things anymore. My lady moved ahead of me her hair rising into the air around her as though the air were water. Electric curled through the writhing strands. She passed her own room and I, stumbling, called out to her again, all but screaming over the thunder rumbling in the walls. It seemed for a moment the entire house would crumble. A small, soft hand gripped my arm above the elbow. The world seemed to pull itself back into focus as I turned to find my lady's concerned eyes meeting my own. The hallway was dark, save my lamp and the soft light of the moon shining through the clouds and into the skylights running the length of the second-floor hallway. The red of her eyes was dark enough in the light to seem almost brown. Are you okay? 
she asked in her fashion. What's wrong? You were screaming. I stood for a long moment, looking up and down the hallway, mouth ajar. There was nothing out of place, nothing amiss. My lady's hair, lying in loose, clean night braids on the sides of her head, did not jump and dance with curling electric. In time, I said nothing, but she did, leaning her forehead against my chest and touching my arms as they hung limply at their sides. I did not know the extent to which my pulse was running away with itself until I felt it calm beneath her touch. My own erratic breath, too, lessened so that my head suddenly felt clear. I swallowed and stepped backward, apologizing. It's fine, she told me, though I could see some concern lingering in her eyes. Concern for me, only for me. She gave me a smile and nodded goodnight before slowly closing her door. I listened for the sound of her finishing her climb into bed and the low sounds of her breathing, and then I returned to my quarters. I lay in bed, thinking over what I had seen, falling asleep despite the distant sound of that infernal thumping coming from my lady's sewing room, the sound of the broken window, and the wet rag of curtains slapping the side of the manor house. The next day, my lady began to die. Our daily waltz faltered on its second step, and from then on, there was no more dancing. I came to her door, opened it, and found my lady's bed empty. Then I saw her feet beyond the edge of the bed, just the bottoms of them, and running to her found the woman herself curled on her side on the floor. The look on her face was that of absolute pain. Until she saw I'd found her, and she favored me with a soft, apologetic smile. I suppose I've made a fool of myself, she said in her way, and I told her she hadn't, before helping her back onto the bed. She sat doubled over for a long while, before finally asking me to help her use the restroom. I did and I thought her no less dignified for doing so. I carried her everywhere after that, first by letting her loop her arm over my shoulder and then as a child. Her body was light and hot. As I've said before, like a bag of dry grass. Not a terrible thing to be compared to, even if it's not something you yourself might appreciate. Perhaps it is. I don't know. I did my best to maintain some semblance of our old dance, but she was no longer up to most of it. Food dwindled from three meals a day to just tea in the morning and thin stew at night. Anything else was simply too much. She still enjoyed the garden, and as we sat out there I noticed two things. The first was that the curtain was still hanging out on the side of the house, though it had now dried flat against the bricks. The second was that I couldn't find Mrs. Spratling's grave marker. I said just as much to my lady as we sat for tea in the afternoon on the third day after I had found her on the floor. I expected as much, is what she told me, going back to her tea. 
She saw my confusion and after a moment explained. It was difficult to understand her at first. The weakness had robbed her hands of their spryness and her expressions were slow. But I came to understand the material of the swamps moved constantly. Anything buried in the mud out there might be stuck under or moved ten or twenty or a hundred feet down the way or moved in some other maddening fashion by the next morning. It was just the nature of things. But the swamp remains, she said, waving a hand out over the gold and green before us. And that's all that needs be. I agreed, even though I felt I might be nodding along to more than she'd simply said, and then excused myself from tea. While there was nothing I could do about the tragically displaced Mrs. Spratling, I could very well put the upstairs window to rights, board it up at least. I told Miss Withrow that I intended to do just that, and she nodded without paying me much attention. She had eyes only for the swamp, with its rising mists and steady, endless music. In truth, I didn't like the thought of her so close to all that danger, the crocodiles and snakes and the like, but she didn't seem to mind it herself. The one time we came close to arguing was when I first mentioned it might not be safe. So I left her behind and climbed the stairs to her sewing room. She hadn't had the time or energy for this pastime since she'd fallen by the bed. I could tell it perturbed her some, but she had been more upset by the inability to hold a book for long, and so that was the problem we had been addressing in the interim. The sewing room was a massive room of the sort so cluttered with shelves and stacks of material it actually seemed quite small. Perhaps a dozen half or mostly finished projects took up the small tables immediately in front of the door and all the rest of the space was finished items. Clothing on figures, fresh curtains to replace any damaged ones in the house that seemed themselves terribly old, if not well aged, and what seemed to be a hundred blankets and throws and comforters. But what caught my eyes the most was the great tapestry over the back windows. I had paid it little mind before. Often it was too dark when I tended her in the late hours of the night to see much of it. But now I could see the entirety of the thing. It was a story, stitched into fabric the way one might lay stained glass into a window, almost shining in the afternoon light. The beauty of it took my breath away. It was the story of a young girl growing up in this house, told in moments I only partially understood. Here, a man sitting at a concrete table and having some ugly conversation with a dark figure. Here, a mother guiding a little girl's hand as she learned her first stitch. Here, a grown woman, a figure of almost complete white with red for eyes, standing over a series of gravestones with her arms out. Here, an equally dark figure with purple eyes, holding out a hand and being spurned. I tried to make sense of it, and all the other images, most of them small things so tiny they could barely cover my thumb. Those I mentioned above were perhaps the only whole scenes larger than a dinner plate, and then, even barely. I kept taking them in as I passed the curtain, my eyes barely able to break free of the images. Then I was at the window, and somehow suddenly back in the real world. 
I pulled the curtain back inside the window and then off the crossbar entirely. The storm had torn the thing to shreds and what was left was beyond mending. Most of the needlework was gone and the fabric was beginning to stink from mold. I stopped to look down into the garden and was surprised to see Miss Withrow standing at the edge of the swamp. She had her arms out to her sides and a gentle wind was blowing out of the reeds. The smell was fetid, heavy, but not terribly unpleasant. It carried also the dense, full scent of growing things, flowers and fruits and frogs and God knows what else, but life, rich and terrible life. I saw then, or thought I saw, the figure of a man amongst the trees at the edge of the water. He stood perhaps a dozen yards from the spot where we'd buried Mrs. Spratling. His body leaned frontward against the trunk of a cypress so that I could barely make out the shape of him. I wouldn't have seen him, in fact, if Miss Withrow hadn't been there looking out at him. But even as I watched his motionless form, I couldn't tell if I was seeing a man or not, or anything at all. A second longer staring and I realized it was vines on the side of the tree. A second longer than that, and I saw the face contort in surprise and look up at me, purple eyes shining out of the murk down there like sunlight, falling on fresh orchids. Then Miss Withrow fell to the ground very suddenly, and I was running, running, without thinking or caring what I might find, simply running. I was out in the garden in seconds, cradling her thin form and forgetting myself enough in my panic that I was scolding her for being so reckless. She laughed in her rasping way and touched my face, thanking me for being so concerned. I helped her to her feet and then took her back to her seat at the table in the garden. I returned for her cane, which she had dropped, taking a long second to look out into the swamp. It was there, in all its dangerous glory, much as it had ever been. I stooped over to grab the cane and disturbed a bullfrog that had been resting on the ground beside it. It passed its large, baleful eyes over me and then hopped away toward the water. I stood and my heart caught in my chest for a moment. In the window, above the garden, where I had been standing only moments before, stood a dark man in the shadows. Not dark of skin, but of substance. A thing cut from the whole cloth of the universe to leave nothing but a hole in the fabric. An absence of a thing, or so I thought. A second longer of looking helped me convince myself I was doing nothing more than noticing the motion of the curtain the storm had ruined as the wind blustered through the ruined window glass. It wasn't until late that night that I shot up in bed, beating the light switch on with my hand in a panic that I remembered I had taken the ruined curtain down and left it in a soggy bundle on one of my lady's work tables. The final sickness swept in so quickly I felt she'd been stolen from me before she'd even gone. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but it has been on my mind all the time I've been writing this. Perhaps you might find it odd how much I came to love this woman in such a short time. She was my employer, yes. I was her thrall, surely, to a degree at least. And we had little in the way of months between that first soft meeting and the last hard parting. 
She was kind to me, I suppose is the whole of it, attentive to me even when I was attending to her. She seemed to understand my feelings before I came to know their presence myself, and was always reaching out a hand to help. Perhaps it was some guilt on her part. I was, after all, a young man from a distant place, come all the way to watch an old woman die in wasted opulence. In the city I departed to come to this place I was nothing, hardly a man in the eyes of women and men alike, less of a lover, more of a burden. I am not a happy person, or a brave one. I prefer darkness to light in a way that perturbs others, though I think myself more of a rabbit in a den than any more nefarious cave-dweller. I think she understood that about me, and enjoyed a similar disposition herself. The entirety of her life, she told me, had been lived within the great and sweeping walls of the manor house. She knew from books that others might envy such a grandiose life. But it was not so grandiose by comparison to a man who can see three times as much of the world on his way to buy an apple at the market. She envied those people, free out in the world, in a way she knew they would envy her in turn, safe from the world in her great house. But it was merely just the way of things, and she was too old to do much about it now. Couldn't, at any rate. Though she wouldn't speak to me about it, softly patting my hand and changing the subject when I asked. There was something about the place that held her enthralled to it as much as my occupation did me to her. She had the grounds and the gables and the gardens and not much else. A great lot, but also very little. And in that way we came to understand each other, and before the last days of her sickness, we spent many hours as introverts do. I would sit reading a few seats away from her. We would share wine or tea or our meals in certain wondrous rooms in the house and simply enjoy each other's company, talking little or not at all. Sometimes I would walk with her from room to room and just explore the confines of this massive prison she'd inherited. This beginning was pleasant. The end was not. I gave up on sleeping in my own quarters as my lady's needs were significant and constant toward the end. Together we entered a sleepless dream state of pain and exhaustion, her waking at all hours and sleeping when I wasn't all but forcing her to eat. The sickness she'd come down with was devouring her alive from the inside, starting at her stomach and working its way out. There was nothing to be done. I am familiar with this disease, as I have said, and to spare you the particulars of the worst of my lady's indignities, I won't share with you its name. I believe I have said this. I may be repeating myself. But I am quite tired. My only respite was the occasional walk through the halls of the house. I had no sense of the pace of time then, in the last week of my lady's hospice but it seemed as though the house had fallen in on itself in places. The sections I had walked with her only months ago had collapsed or were now withered and full of detritus falling in through open windows. There were moments where I would have to kneel and clutch my head, pulling it between my knees to regain my composure. In my delusions, 
Lightning would be wrinkling the blue sky over the open roofs and the distant wings of the house. This flickering blue would fall over my face, catching in my eyes so that I felt the electric burning down into the heart of me. I have heard epileptics give similar accounts of their own conditions, but that particular affliction has never bothered me, then or before, or since. In this glittering, writhing, wrinkling space, I would cast about half-blind for something to help me to my feet, suddenly worried for my lady's safety. Inevitably, I would find her, soaring just above the floor in the hallway, face black with ruin and her white hair curling up around her head. I would raise my hand to her, call to her, but she would never answer. Or I would see that dark man, that thing, peering around some distant corner. His eyes were flat and purple and dull, the color of orchids rotting against the wet bark of a cypress tree. Then all would return, as though I'd taken a great breath, and I'd hurry back to my lady's side. Usually she'd be in the fit of some dream, only shuddering awake at my touch, sweating and wild-eyed. There was a dwindling supply of morphine in the house I used to quell her worst pains, but it could only ever do so much. The dose she needed to be free was more than I had the heart to give her. The day, which was the last day, found me waking on the thick eastern futon I'd procured from one of the upstairs rooms. My dreams were of the worst sort, seeming almost inseparable from the visions of my waking life. Let me make no small business of how worrisome these delusions were and how concerned they made me both for myself and my lady. But I had no recourse. In any other circumstance, I might have recused myself and found a more suitable candidate, but Miss Withrow could not survive the travel to town or the wait while I was gone. I could not even go to town for supplies, which I had done on numerous occasions. Ebling is a small, ugly town of little note and nothing happened there worth mentioning to you. People thought I looked odd and that I was even more so odd for the sort of work I was doing out there in the swamp. All things I'm fully used to. I pushed myself to my feet and almost died of a heart attack. My lady was not in her bed or in the bathroom adjoining the bedroom. I burst into the hall frantically pulling my clothes into place and calling aloud for her, for what good it might do. She had barely the strength to raise a cup to her mouth, much less knock against something hard to get my attention. I eventually found her laying delirious in a puddle of her own sweat. An actual puddle, mind you. This is how bad the fever had gotten. She had crawled or stumbled, I don't know, into the great and cluttered workroom down the hall. I dropped to my knees and turned her over, sighing with relief when her dazed eyes found mine, and she smiled. Her finger raised above her head toward the tapestry, and I followed it to where some dark figure stood entangled with a powder-white woman with red eyes. She touched my face then, and mouthed a single word to me. Finished. Seven hours. This is how long I watched her die. After the second, she was no longer sane. The pain was simply too much. I put her in an ice bath to quell her fever, 
but the heat of her flesh was so intense it melted the ice and caused a general fog to rise in the bathroom. There was no intimate detail about her I didn't know at this point, but I still did my best to preserve her dignity as I dragged her failing body to and from the tub. By this point, the disease had ravaged her so badly her stomach had receded to lay nearly flat against her spine. Her body hadn't an ounce of spare fat or muscle, though her face seemed fine enough, and her hair was still white and full. I brought her to the bed to lay her down, not wanting to administer the morphine while she was submerged in water, knowing, as I do now, that I was already trying to steal myself for braver men's work. On the seventh hour, holding her hand, it felt like I was touching a fresh kettle. I told her I was sorry. I couldn't do anything else. Her breathing was soft and harsh, like two rough pieces of paper being rubbed together. It made me think of the library and our time we spent there, and I began to cry. Delirious with fever. She couldn't raise a hand to my face and laugh and tell me not to worry. She could do nothing but stare and seeing at the ceiling. I begged for her to forgive me. I asked, I begged, I asked. But she could say nothing. I asked her for a sign to tell me she wanted to be set free of this, clenching her soft hand in my own as I did so. Small beads of blood dripped over my hand from the pinpricks she'd left in her skin, fumbling through the last of her work. But from her there was nothing, save the steady sound and scent of pain and sickness. I put the first surrette of morphine into her subclavian artery, then the second, then the third. Her breathing grew slower. Her body shuddered. She began to cough and then spasm. Then a general blueness settled over her flesh and her muscles stilled, stiffened, went slack. Then she was gone. There was a final relaxation of her body. I watched the last bit of shine and focus go out of her eyes, the red of them, almost crimson in those last hours, dulled to scarlet. Burgundy, and then the clotted color of rust. She was gone. I wept a great deal, not knowing what to do with myself. Eventually I walked outside as though in a daze, finding the shovel in the woodshed and digging as best I could a suitable grave for my lady. Though what patch of mud is suitable for a life? To what ghastly, cavernous earth could I commend her? To watch her fall into, graceless and slack in death, to be fettered over by worms and centipedes and all manners of dark things. Forced to choose, I settled on a patch of pinkish flowers by a cypress I thought sturdy enough to keep her body from floating off as did Mrs. Spratling's. Then I went through the painful process of burying her. I found a nice frock of sorts I'm sure she'd worn as a younger woman, one of the few things in her closets that still evoked a sense of freedom. It was stitched all over with small yellow flowers and the occasional image of a rabbit frozen in mid-jump. I cleaned her body and dressed her in this, 
then worked her hair into something presentable. She had left me no instructions, given me simple, conciliatory hand-pats when I'd even tried asking her before. Well, before. She was too small for the coffin Mrs. Spratling had made for herself, though she lay beatifically in the smaller space as though it had been tailored to her all the way. I said a few words, cried, and then nailed the cheap lid shut as best I could. Then I dragged the thing to the mud and lay it beneath, carefully as possible. I filled the hole with mud from her feet to her head, cringing at every thump of dirt on the uneven and badly set boards. I cursed myself for not ripping apart every abandoned bit of furniture in the house to make something more suitable for her. But I don't know how I'd have had the strength for the project. Even now I could barely work the shovel. I was so distraught. It was the last shovel full at the head of the coffin that broke me entirely. Heavy with water, the dirt fell onto the face of the coffin and snapped the brittle boards. I watched as the dirt fell inside to stain the white shroud I'd wrapped her in, a section of unused linen from her workshop. Amongst the dirt and the shroud lay a lock of white hair that had spilled free from the wrapping, perhaps while I'd been moving her. I dropped to my knees, hands out and shaking. I thought of the mud soaking through onto her face, dirtying her hair to a dull brown. I thought more of the dirt, the shards of old wood falling onto the cloth over her open red eyes. Those beautiful eyes which had looked on me in friendship a thousand times now committed to the grave. To worms and centipedes and pill bugs, to dirt crawlers that would rend them to pieces as though they had no value at all. As though they had meant nothing to the world. To me, to me. To me, the man who would let this woman die who is no doctor, no fixer of broken things, allowed a perfect and beautiful woman to go mad with pain and sickness and finally kill her because he was so beyond his depth. It was my fault. Me. I stretched out my fingers to the spot where the mud had caved in the casket. How was I so sure she was dead? I was so incompetent, she looked so alive. I needed to dig her back up to pull her out of that filth. She was no mere worm food. She was the most kind and understanding person I'd ever known. I couldn't do this to her. I screamed and dug my hand into the mound of raised earth over the head of the casket, dragging it over the opening in the ground, fistful by fistful, until the space beneath me was flat, and I was laying over it and sobbing like a child. My stomach was thick with steel. I was dying. I would die with her and damn the burial. I would give myself to the ravens. The bullfrog croaked beside my filth-streaked face, and I opened my eyes to look at it. It stared back at me for a long moment and then hopped off to wherever, content in its own existence. Not knowing what to do with myself, I stripped naked in the kitchen and washed myself in my dirty clothes in the sink using the hottest water the boilers would provide. I awoke in my own quarters, still partially drunk off the brandy I'd stolen from my lady's larders. They were near to empty now, 
save for liquor and some dry ingredients that would last all eternity, if eternity ever came. The inside of my room was yellow with lamplight, but the hall outside my door flickered with the mad blue of the mental lightning storms of my delusions. I stepped out into that maelstrom, where the light moved on the walls like water and nothing had shape or sense. I saw something on the upstairs landing and sprinted the length of the library to the stairs, screaming her name. I found her, this image of my lady, floating in her mad way in the hall. Her face lay in tatters over the bone. Only a single eye remained still dully red despite the casual deflations of death. I held my hands out to her and begged her forgiveness. I'm sorry, I sobbed at the apparition. I had no better choice. You are in such pain, I... I didn't want to see you hurt like that. She said nothing, merely floated back and out of sight, coloring the walls with her passing. I chased after her, but she moved all the faster from my efforts, and soon I was on my knees in front of a wall, screaming and beating my fists against it alone in the dark. Then I felt a presence behind me and turned to see him, the dark man peering as was his way from the door of my lady's room. I screamed to him, Don't you dare! Not there! Never there! Then I sprinted the length of the hall and into the room, not caring if he'd grow teeth and claws and rip me to pieces. I was beyond fear, or so I thought. I turned and saw him in front of me, close now, so that his mad sunken eyes and slack, pale face were just before me. I screamed, startled, and stepped back only to stumble over something. There was a thump, and then utter blackness. I saw her sinking into the mud at the far end of the garden. Her legs slipped beneath first, up to her ankles, and then the rest of her. She gave me that casual smile as though nothing in all the world was wrong, even as she grew deeper as the skin of her face moldered and stiffened. As the carrion bugs devoured the very flesh from her bones, she smiled. I ran, hand out, but I could not reach her. The mud had her. The mud had her. I awoke to a headache worse than any hangover. The morning light, I knew it was morning from the angle it came into my lady's bedroom. Hurt not just my eyes, but my brain. I clutched my pounding head and pulled away a hand covered in tacky, mostly dried blood. Looking up, I saw myself reflected in my lady's dressing mirror. A youth of nearly twenty-four, bedraggled from misery and face covered half in blood from falling and striking my full head on my lady's nightstand. My eyes were deeply bloodshot, an almost hilariously ugly answer to the radiant crimson of my lady's eyes. Great purple bags lay beneath them. My clothes were muddy and torn at the shoulder, an injury I don't recall the cause of. Then I remembered my dream, her smiling and sinking into the ground. Sobbing, I made my way out to the garden picking around for the shovel and searching for the cypress beside which I'd buried her. 
I could only think of her down there, dirty and uncared for, alone in the mud. I struck the mud with the shovel and began to dig. I found nothing, and so I tried in another spot, then another, then another. It wasn't until an hour later, when my hands were so raw I could no longer hold the shovel and was digging with just the sides of my palms, moving thin amounts of earth aside, that I remembered my lady's comments about how the earth moves in this place. How Mrs. Spratling's grave was gone to the swamps. And now I knew hers would be too. I felt again that presence, that awful presence, and turned to see him staring down at me from my lady's workroom. That dark figure, face all but concealed by shadow, staring down at me from the second floor window. I snatched up the shovel in my bloody hands, fully intent on staving in the bastard's head with it, and rushed into the house. Again the halls were filled with that flickering light, but it was much diminished now, so that it felt more like a film on reality than a new reality, wholly substituted for the one in which I existed. This thin delusion persisted with me into my lady's workroom. The figure wasn't there, as I believe now I knew before I even started into the house. Still, I flailed about for him, getting mud and blood on all my lady's fine new silks and denims and linens, all those unrolled bolts of fabric she'd never put needle to. Eventually I stood in the window where he had looked out and saw myself down there, or at least a memory of myself, standing beside Miss Withrow and looking out into the swamp. It really was beautiful, the swamp, though perhaps you have to be a connoisseur of sorts to truly appreciate it. Then, when I'd stood beside her, I could think of only the dangers of the place. But now she was a part of it, truly within it, and beyond where I or anybody else could reach her. It was a place where she was truly happy, a home beyond the home she'd been bound to. A heaven only she understood, but a heaven nonetheless. I dropped my bloody spade and sank into the corner, fully cloaked in my grief and wondering even what right I had to linger alone in this woman's home and mourn her. For all the closeness I felt, I was still a short time interloper in a long life. It only took a single look at this mural on her wall to understand that. The story of her life played out in fine tapestral stitching. As I looked closer, I saw many things I had not before. The version of my lady I had seen in my hallway delusions was represented here and there and there again, always spectral and distant. Often this thing would be found by that dark figure, who once spoke with my lady's father beside the concrete table in the garden. I saw him many times in the work and then I saw myself. In the end, her diminished abilities didn't allow her to work so well with the thread as at her height. The last years of her life mirrored the earliest in the lack of complexity, though the developed talents were heartbreakingly apparent. There was frustration in the tightness of the stitching, the angular and then sometimes crooked bits of patchwork placed here and there as cover-up. The last entry in the quilt was flecked over with bits of blood, and I remembered the times I had found her at work in here and her fingers red with pinpricks, 
she'd forced herself through the last of it. And the final image was this. The man. The dark figure. Intertwined with the electric white figure. Both of them twisted together until they were merged irrevocably, becoming a gray and new thing with the familiar features of a rabbit. I sat and looked at this image for a long time, and the single, crooked word stitched into the fabric beneath. It was, in fact, the only word of any sort on the grand tapestry, and I still think on it at times. Should I tell you it? Perhaps not. Perhaps some things are, even though they might not seem it, quite private. I stood after a long while and got myself together, cleaning myself with the last of the house's hot water before turning off the boilers. I attended to the last matters of Miss Withrow's estate, ensuring the windows and the like were closed tightly as they could be and cleaning all the dishes. When everything was in place, beds made and all that, I collected the entirety of my earnings and the sums required to be paid to the Holmes Company as part of my hiring. I am an avid reader, as I have said, and I would like to say there was some great final confrontation that perhaps I, through ingenuity or attention to detail, or through the strength of my convictions, set some great fault to rights. I cannot say any of that happened, though I did find I do not have the stomach for hospice work. I am a soft-hearted sort, and this occupation will certainly kill me if I keep at it. I do not know the true meaning of Miss Withrow's tapestry, or the life that played out on it. Despite the love I felt for my lady, I cannot pretend to truly know her, though I believe I had some idea. I think my part in her story was to be a handrail of sorts to the next stage of something I cannot understand, for better or worse, and I believe I accomplished that. I must believe it, or I will simply drive myself mad. I am now far removed from Miss Withrow's estate, which has, like the woman herself, passed into the hands of the swamp. If you wish to come find me and make me answer for any of what transpired there, I am living in Cincinnati now and have included my address in this letter. I do not believe I am insane, though you may disagree. Thank you for your time and for employing me these last three years in the service of the Holmes Company. Mrs. Holmes, I cannot express how much the opportunity meant to me. Hopefully I might rely on your good reference as I try to find a more fitting occupation. In parting, I would like to leave you with an experience of Withrow Manor House I had upon leaving. I had locked the front door and then hidden the key beneath one of the large rocks bordering the turnaround. Even then, the great fountainhead there had already become so overrun with vines it was unrecognizable. Much of the house was now so covered in green I could not make out where it ended and where the swamp began. But as I stood, I felt something quite remarkable. Utter peace. It was as though it was shared with me, slipped into my hand like a note at a party. The feeling was intense enough I almost swooned from it, but I stood somehow, swaying like one of the great cypress trees in a windstorm. I caught no sight of untoward apparitions, no dark figures slinking about in the distance. 
but I did hear the rush and tumble of small creatures in the bushes just beyond the cobblestones. I stood there for a long while and listened to the swamp. It was truly beautiful. And I think I understood her love for it as well in that moment. Then I heard the croak of a bullfrog and looked down to see one the size of my fist standing on my foot. He looked at me and I at him. Then he bounded off in his own direction, and I in mine. Yours truly, Amos Huntley. Well, that was Mud of the Heart. What do you think? Have you ever been badly hurt by somebody's passing? Have you ever worked hospice, and has any of your patients ever appeared to you as a lightning-shrouded nightmare wandering the wings of a far-flung mansion? Let us know in the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. It's a place full of like-minded fans of the show who talk about horror and literature and the show and whatever else comes to mind. They, and I, would love to hear from you, so hop on over to Facebook and search for the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club today. While you're there, you can also follow our fan page by just searching Westside Fairy Tales, or if Twitter is more your speed, you can get to me at WS Fairy Tales. If you like pictures of creepy stuff, and rabbits, and sometimes food, then go to Instagram and follow us at Westside Fairy Tales. If you'd like to support us monetarily, please consider heading to westsidefairytales.com merch and buying a souvenir of the show. We have t-shirts, hats, hoodies, and even mugs and stickers and other stuff, so Head on by if you have a few bucks and want to show your support. You could also support us on Patreon, where just $1 gets you early access to all episodes. Higher tiers get you access to special episodes, super early raw releases of the show without ads or intros, and even free merch. Contributions from listeners help this show to continue providing free, high-quality content, and we really can't thank all of you who support us enough. For those of you interested in a deeper breakdown of this month's recommendations, David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day and The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers, tune in to the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episode that'll be dropping on the feed in two weeks. In those episodes, I provide some in-depth discussion on the recommendations, some history of their creation, and talk about what they mean to me as a horror author and writer. Next month, we bring you the confession of a mutinous sailor as he lives out his last days in a sort of unholy exile. I hope you'll join us the first Friday of January for the first new story of 2020. Oh, heaven. And, until next time, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2019 WSF Productions LLC.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. 
due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.